Hello, this is Pastor Keeker. I am the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Clinton, Missouri. Thanks for joining us for this Sunday School class that I'm currently teaching on, a Lutheran theology of worship. In particular, we're focusing on the the Holy Eucharist and the gifts of rest and forgiveness and life and salvation, which the Lord provides to us freely in His Son's body and blood. This is the 10th class of a 12-week class. You're invited to the next one. It's this Sunday at 9 a.m. at our church. Um, Thank you for joining us. God bless you. The Lord be with you always. Obviously, such abuses serve to exclude lay people from active participation in the liturgy of the church and from receiving the gifts of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. The intense weekly devotion to receiving his word and sacrament that had flowed from the Holy Spirit's leading after Pentecost had been replaced with man-made teachings and prescriptions that lacked the promise of God concerning the very presence of Christ. And instead of pressing their pastors to serve them Jesus' gifts every week, the laity were now paying the pastors to perform an act believed to have the power over some need in this life or some relative or friend in death. Yikes. Well, Psalm 107 is our psalm this morning in church. It'll be, it'll be our last time singing the service of matins today. Um, and this psalm is our psalm that will be there in matins. And uh, Psalm 107 um it points us to, you know, the very reason why we gather in church is to care for our soul. It points us to the soul um, and what the soul longs for and what the soul needs and how the soul is taken care of. Um, you know, this is, this is why the church exists, is to care for souls, pastors, and uh it was like the 1600s. The common term for pastor in German was Salesorger. Is that right? Salesorger. Salesman. <laughs> Salesman. Uh, a soul. Uh, yeah, carer of the soul, right? Um, to care or to heal the soul. Or the soul is sorrowful, you went to a Salesorger. Right, one who knows how to handle sorrowful souls, um, and you know, Psalm one hundred seven points us to, uh, you know, what every pastor points a sorrowful soul to, to the Lord. Um, he's the one who satisfies the longing soul. So um, these are really good verses to to reflect on for our soul, um, just as we care for our bodies every day uh, by eating and by sleeping by working Um, the soul needs cared for too Um, 
and it's not cared for by eating actual food or, or working. Um, it's cared for by the Lord, um, He alone. So, um, Psalm 107, I, we're just going to look at the first nine verses, or pray the first nine verses. Um, it's 43 verses altogether, um, and they're all wonderful, but sometimes I can get lost in the weeds. So, we'll just look at the first nine. The Lord be with you. Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble, and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Heavenly Father, you created us, body and soul. You breathed into us the breath of life that comes from you, and you filled us with every good thing. And we took these things, Lord, that you have given to us, and we made a wreck of them. We wasted that which you gave us out of your goodness, and we spent it in reckless living, pursuing our passions and our selfish desires. And we were a wasteland. And we, we lost you. Our souls were parched. And we were stuck in our own dreary land with no water, no shelter, no land to dwell in, but only our own selfish ambitions and self-centered ways. And we were dead in those trespasses and sins in which we once walked and our souls fainted within us. But you, O oh God, according to your rich mercy and grace, you sent your Son. And in Jesus Christ, you fill the soul with every good thing. The one who breathes out among us his Holy Spirit, who forgives the sins of the parched soul and who raises the dead one back to life and brings us into the land of the living, a city to dwell in and to be sheltered under your wings, O Lord. We pray for all those who gather in your house today throughout the world that their souls would be nourished, and that you, O Lord, would satisfy every longing soul that cries out to you, giving to them your Son, Jesus, and his wounds and his word, that they may taste and see that you are good and that your mercy endures forever. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. Welcome, welcome. Okay. Um, 
We have chapters two and three today in this book uh, called The Blessings of Weekly Communion by Pastor Weeding. And uh, we're going to cover a thousand years of church history in like 40 minutes. So Katrina's not here to laugh at me today, Russ. I'm good. (laughs) Um, So we have a lot to cover. Um, and I think we can get through uh, the first thousand years today. Um, and then uh, at the end of the class, I will uh, ask the question that I left off last week with about, you know, when you first heard about weekly communion, what were kind of your initial thoughts or questions that you might have had? And, and now after spending, this is our 10th week together, um, after 10 weeks Are those questions still kind of lingering around? You still want to kick it around or ask? Um, We'll have an opportunity for that too. Um, So the book, uh, History of the Church, um, we left off in Acts chapter 2, which you want to talk about history. Uh, The scriptures are a great place to begin um, because we do have historical accounts of what the church was doing in Acts chapter 2, that's when the church is created on the day of Pentecost. The church is born by the Holy Spirit. And what's the first thing we see them doing? Well, they're gathering around the apostles' teaching, uh, the Eucharist, and the prayers. And we go to Acts chapter 20, and we see that they are celebrating this Eucharist every Lord's Day. Um, on Act, in Acts 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break the bread, you know, it's just kind of assumed uh, the first day of the week is when we are gathered to celebrate the Eucharist. Um, so in Acts chapter 2, you know, we're in the first century, and they are communing uh, weekly, every Lord's Day. Um, now, if you, if you saw in the book, uh, if, you, if you kind of skipped around or you found that one section... Um, by 1900, um, so that would be the 20th century, when uh, just the Lutheran Church, we're looking at just our own church body in America, uh, we were celebrating communion once a quarter, one time every three months. So the question is, from the historian, is what happened here between the first century and the 20th century where we went from having communion every week to one time every three months? Um, A lot happened in 1900 years. And then what he does a good job of unpacking is, so, you know, the communion practice, it goes way down, or at least the frequency of it, it goes way down. And, and we'll see when that occurrence happened and the reasons why as we look at the history. Because when you're looking at the historical section, right, we talked about those four areas of faithfulness that the Christian wants to consider as they're learning, uh, what the scripture says, um, what the scripture means, how is this believed in history, and then the practical matters of it. When you're in the historical world, you're dealing with this word and you're wanting to see 
if it's changed or if the, the practices have changed, the practical matters. You're looking at, um, has the church always practiced the same way? Well, we're going to see a difference. So then that leads you to the next question is, the systematic question is why? What was the teaching? What was the reasoning behind it? Right? Because the word's the same. This is my body. This is my blood. But we're looking for practical differences and systematic differences. What was being taught? Well, he kind of unpacks, and we'll get to this uh, next week when we pick up from 1,000 to 2,000 uh, uh, AD. But um, the 1950s, now again, we're just looking at Lutheranism. He says most LCMS churches are then offering communion uh, once a month one time a month around the 1950s. Uh, if you grew up and you were in the Lutheran church, that might have been the common practice. Not looking at anyone in particular. Then by the 1990s, so another generation, the LCMS is now offering communion twice a month and um, in that same uh, decade, the LCMS publicly comes out at convention encouraging its churches to recover weekly communion. All right, this is the resolution that they passed to encourage its congregations to go back to offering communion every week. So that by 2005, now we see one-third of LCMS churches are offering it weekly um, by 2005. And now by 2020, over one half of LCMS churches are offering the sacrament weekly. So now we see the trend going the other way. We're moving back towards offering communion more frequently. Our question today is what happened from the first century to 1000 AD? Okay, the Didache. Um, first historical um, thing outside of the scriptures. So Acts 2, they're celebrating it every week, every Lord's Day, we're told, in Acts 2 and Acts 20. And then uh, Pastor Weeding points us to the Didache. Now, has anyone heard of the Didache before? Uh, it was written in Greek. Greek. No one's heard of the Didache before. Okay, well, this is good. Well, the elders have. Okay. Um, this is um, it's a, it's essentially a catechism that, that church tradition says the apostles wrote this. This is 40 to 60 AD, the Didache. It's the teaching of the 12 apostles. So it's the first catechism of the church. Um, and the apostles themselves wrote it, and we know that the church was using it by 70 AD, the same time that the scriptures themselves are being circulated among the churches. Um, but we know that it was written somewhere between 40 and 60 AD. At some point, the apostles sat down and they wrote this small handbook on Christianity. The church has always had catechisms, right? Luther was not the first one who wrote a catechism, <laughs> um, but I do like his. The Didache was the very first one. And we see 
what, how the church is practicing in that first century, and also what she's stating about the Eucharist. Um, because in the Didache, well, I'll say this. This is how the Didache starts. It's a beautiful, beautiful line. There are two ways, one of life and one of death. And there's a big difference between the two. Okay. And there's this line in the Didache that says this. Uh, on the Lord's day, this is what the apostles wrote, we come together to break bread, hold the Eucharist, and confess our transgressions. This is page 55 in your book. Does everyone, does anyone need a book to kind of share? I got, I have one more that I can offer. Good. Good. Elders have already looked through this. Okay, good. Go to page 55. And here's where he begins with a historical, um, historical analysis. We're going to start with the scriptures, and now we're going to the Didache. And on page 55, he writes, oh, I'm on page 57. That's the problem. Okay, so there in the middle paragraph, he says, There's a reason to believe that an early document of Syrian origin, the Didache, or the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, was present in the first century of the church. Some scholars suggest that the Didache is present by AD 70. Others suggest it's as early as AD 40 to AD 60. So this would mean that the Didache may well have been present even as the New Testament books were being written. And even if its writings were later in the century, it certainly reflects the practice that was in place earlier in earlier decades. The Didache is not a letter to a congregation or a pastor. It's an instruction manual, right? It's a catechism. It's a teaching of the faith. It provides directions for different aspects of the church's life and teaching. It was intended for those desiring to be baptized. The Didache speaks about two ways, the way of death and the way of life, the way of the teaching. It's the first picture outside the New Testament of how the church worshiped. In chapter 14, the Didache briefly describes Sunday worship in this way. On the Lord's day, we come together, we break bread, hold the Eucharist after confessing your transgressions. Um, and then he has, a, he has an excursion on close communion, as the church has always practiced that. Um, so uh, it's interesting that when describing their worship, what's the thing that they mention in the Didache? And what are the two that they don't mention? If you think of Acts chapter 2, right? They actually hold up the Eucharist is mentioned, not the prayers or even the apostles' teaching. Um, not that those two things weren't there. It just goes to show the central importance of the Eucharist in the early church. In fact, if you have the Didache, now I have two, I have two translations of it. Um, one, this Pastor Oles wrote, he's a Greek Orthodox, and I like his translation actually better than uh, Pastor Pless, who's Lutheran. Um, hope no Lutheran higher-ups listen to this podcast, but... Uh, <laughs> There, you can get a copy of the Didache on Amazon for a couple of bucks. They're not expensive at all if you want to read through it. But a third of this catechism is actually on the Eucharist. I mean, the, the Lord's Supper, it runs throughout a lot of their teaching. Um, it's of central importance. Um, and so there's a lot there. And so, of course, they're going to highlight it. Um, Okay, and so then from there, we move to Justin Martyr. Now, this one's fascinating because Justin Martyr, now we're in the, okay, so the Didache, 70s, Didache, 
they're having it every Lord's Day, right? Every Lord's Day we come together, we hold the Eucharist after confessing our transgressions. Consistent history, still practicing the same way as the church. Now we move to the 150s and we meet a man by the name of Justin Martyr. And this is what's fascinating about this. This probably wouldn't have been as fascinating until about five years ago. Remember when the uh, political... I don't even remember who it was. Was it the mayor in Texas who wanted the sermons that the pastors were preaching? Who was that in Texas? Did you hear about this? They were forcing the pastors in Texas to provide the sermons that they were wanting to know what was being preached in the pulpit. Um, No one has heard about this. makes me feel like I just dreamt about it. There was this political overreach about uh, seven or eight years ago, and I don't know if it was the mayor, it was some political person, the city council or someone in Texas was requiring pastors to provide their sermons for oversight so that hate speech would be controlled, LGBTQI um, things would not be proclaimed from the pulpit. Now, uh, a lot of people got riled up about it, Uh, and rightfully so, but this is nothing new. In fact, Justin Martyr 2,000 years ago had the same thing happen. The Roman government wanted to know what these Christians were up to when they gathered together. The Roman government was already uh, threatening persecution. Persecution was already happening, and we have the letter that Justin Martyr writes to the Roman government. Their concern is about Christian worship. Just what is going on when you all get together? And it's a great historical document. And um, page 57 in the book gives us a line from that document. There's a name for it, uh, this letter. Um, Oh, it's called the First Apology, right? Uh, Justin Martyr is making a defense, an apology. He's defending why Christians worship the way they worship and why the Roman government needs to see themselves out of this arena. Um, And he writes this. Look at page 57. Um, Okay, Uh, last paragraph, Um, right there in the middle. The first apology describes worship in the church at Rome as a gathering on Sunday led by a presiding minister, president. That's where we get the word president from, one who presides over the service. Um, The worship began with readings from the apostles or the writings of the prophets, as long as time permits. So I like that. As long as people can handle it, we're going to keep reading. Continued with a sermon by the presiding minister, followed by congregational prayers, and culminated in the Eucharist. Um, This is what Justin Martyr's letter says to Rome. There's readings of the scriptures, a sermon, prayers, and it culminates in the Eucharist. Same three things in Acts chapter 2 that the church is gathering around. That this is what's happening on Sunday. He wants the government to know. Now, the question of the historian is, do we see a change occurring yet? Right? Or is it the same thing that is being passed down is still continuing? 
um, from generation to, to, to generation. Um, so Justin Martyr, his apo first apology, they're still having communion every Lord's Day, every Sunday, actually. He's the one who, uh, who clarifies it's, it's on Sunday that the church is meeting, at least in Rome. And when she meets in Rome, uh, we have prayers, we have scripture, and we have the Eucharist. Um, okay. Now we go to Hippolytus. Hippolytus is one of my favorites. 250s. So now we're moving to the third century. Um, now, the, Hippolytus is, is fascinating because at that time, the Roman emperor is... Um, I forgot his name, uh, Septimus Severus or something like that. Uh, it's in the book. Is, this is page, page 59. Who's the emperor? Sixty. Is it, is it Septimus? <laughs> I remembered. Okay. Don't be too impressed. I just read it last night. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so this emperor, he's the one who passes down an edict, an official edict um, that, de that declared that if you're a Christian, you should, be, you should be killed for your faith. So an emperor you might want to remember. Um, that spirit's been around a long time. It's the spirit of Satan, right? Uh, th this emperor passes down an edict uh, that uh, if anyone converted to Christianity, it was punishable by death. What's fascinating about the edict, which we still have in history, is that all other religions were acceptable, just not Christianity. And here's why. Because they saw Christians as atheists. Because back then, you believed in many, many, many gods. You had thousands of gods, and Christians were saying, there's one. Well, you're an atheist if you just believe in one. Now it's like the other way around. If you believe in one, it's like, what? You believe there is a God? Right? But back then, no, you, you had gods for everything. And Christians were the weird ones who were saying, all of those are false gods. There's only one true God. And so that was punishable by death. Um, the emperor Septimus Severus, um, he, he, um, he filled the streets with the blood of Christians. Um, you could believe a thousand different things, but not, not Christ. And it's against this backdrop that a pastor named Hippolytus writes down, again, for us a historical document of what the church service looked like. Um, and he records, and this is why I like Hippolytus, he records the actual liturgy, the dialogue that's going back and forth for us in the service on a Sunday morning in church. And what does he write? Did you read this? The Lord be with you. And the people say, and also with you. And then the presiding minister says, lift up your hearts. And the people say, we lift them to the Lord. And then the presiding minister says, let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And then the people will say, it is right to give him thanks and praise. It is right and proper. It is right and proper, right? <laughs> hey, that sounds familiar. It's Hippolytus who writes down the very first liturgy of the church in 250 AD. And lo and behold... We're still doing that. 
Hippolytus is a good one to remember. Um, I think he ended up being martyred for his faith. Uh, this is, what page was that in the book? Page 60. Interesting yeah, Timothy. Sentence is that he wrote to preserve the correct rights against quote mindless innovators. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, he wanted to write down what the church was doing because there's mindless innovators. Um, That's probably what Gotti called him that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which at that point the mindless innovators were um, were uh, political. Um, governmental overreaches into saying, no, 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 this is how you're going to worship. This is a weird time in Rome. Um, you had gladiator games going on. Uh, Christians were being slaughtered, their blood being poured out to spectators of, you know, 80,000 people who would raise and, you know, their bloodbath was, was, oh, they... They just love to go to these games and see Christians murdered. And so there was a lot of willingness on the part of believers to flex how they were worshiping so that they wouldn't get thrown into the, the gladiator games. Right? Let's, let's try to do some things maybe that would not get us so, you know, eaten by lions sort of thing. And Hippolytus says, no, this, we're, not, we're not flexing. We're not bending to the government. We're not, we're not bringing in this governmental, everything's a God sort of stuff. This is how the church is worshipped, and I'm writing it down to preserve it. Um, and the one true God. And, you know, that's where the word Eucharist comes from. Let us give thanks. Uh, Eucharisto is the Greek word for to give thanks. And it's the word Jesus says when he institutes the supper. Um, when he had given thanks, Eucharist, Eucharisto. Um, so it's in the liturgy of the church too. Let us give thanks, Eucharisto. Um, so Hippolytus, it's just a fun, it's a fun name to say. Just say it with me. Hippolytus, Hippolytus, Hippolytus. Um, in 250s, um, the order of service that he writes down, yeah, they're having the Eucharist every Sunday because this is how we're worshiping. And, um, and, and you, can ch you can look at the whole liturgy. We have it. Um, I forgot the name of the series um, that records this uh, letter from Hippolytus, but you can, you can look at it. It's like the ancient Christian commentary series or something like that where you can actually look and the service, there's so many parts. The Sanctus and the Nuke de Menes, all these things are right there in 250 AD. Um, and it's just, it's pretty fascinating to read. Okay, from there, 250, third century. Um, oh, we go to Cyprian. Okay, it's at this point that I think is fascinating because Roman persecutions ramping up. Rome won't be converted over to Christianity for another hundred years. And it's this, at this time that we have a lot of letters from pastors who are writing to their people about how to face that persecution. Um, what's the thing that, that you need in the face of government persecution? And, and we can read where they are pointing their people. Uh, they were pointing them where? 
to the Eucharist. You need this. It's the same thing Luther points the people to during the Black Death. Um, and we read that, I think, a year ago when COVID was hitting. Um, uh, that what you need in the face of sin, death, and the devil, and Roman persecution or government persecution, you need Christ. You need the Eucharist. And Cyprian is the one who's, who, during this time, um, he writes this following quote, which is on page 62. Cyprian's a pastor. <clears throat> you know, at that time, I think about some historians say a third of Christians were martyred. Um, and over half of those who were preparing for baptism as adult catechumens were being slaughtered before they could even be baptized. Um, and it was a common refrain in the early church that you were baptized by blood, meaning you died in your own blood, your blood was shed before you could be baptized. Um, and so this goes back to Jesus on the cross when he's pierced, what comes out of his side, water and blood. And for a lot of the Christians in those days, they weren't baptized with water. They were martyred. And so Cyprian's writing to his people, and he writes this quote that we have in a letter that he writes in, um, this is still third century. He says, <clears throat> this is page 62, we must equip those whom we wish to be safe against the adversary, the adversary here, Satan, also government persecution, with the armor of the Lord's food. For how shall we teach or incite them to shed their blood in the confession of his name if we deny them Christ's blood when they're about to fight? Or how can we make them fit for the cup of martyrdom if we do not first admit them to drink in the church the cup of the Lord by the rite of communion? I love that quote. Um, you're gonna, if you're going to shed your blood for Christ, let's at least give them Christ's blood before they do it. That's what they need. And so Cyprian was willing to stick his neck out there uh, for the sake of his people. It's why when the pandemic hit and we were all shut down for a couple of months, what never stopped happening here? We kept providing the Lord's Supper every Sunday for you to come and have it. No government issue or edict can stop the church from doing that. If that ever happens, um, in some states it did happen, right? But not in Missouri. Um, any pastor, at least any Lutheran pastor, would willingly face prison or jail or whatever it takes in order to continue to provide you with the Lord's blood. I mean, the people need it, especially in times like this. We have to have it. Yeah, Rachel. Luther follows the same vein. Twelve hundred years later, during the Great Plague, you know Luther's great line: uh, "Trust Christ and take a big gulp." Um, you know, people were worried about communion or the Eucharist, and he just, you know, he wouldn't have any of it. He's just like, "Take trust Christ, take a big gulp. You need it." If you're going to die next week from the plague or tomorrow from the plague, um, at least die with Christ in you. If, if you want to face death, that's what you need. And so he continued to provide it. Uh, Luther, you know, just during that time, it's very fascinating. He, you know, he has a wife at this time and, and several children. I think all six 
were alive at that time, and he sends them away for their safety, but he remains in Wittenberg, um, putting his hands on the sick, hearing people's confession, giving them communion, and burying them. Um, because he was also a pastor, a sales sorger, and that's what the people needed. Now, in 300s, uh, and now we see North African Christians being explicitly told by the government that they cannot gather together. Sound familiar? There's a saying like history repeats itself, right? Um, it's illegal. And what's their response? This is page 66. We have a, a letter at that time in the fourth century now. And they write, we cannot be without the things of the Lord. We cannot be without the things of the Lord. We have to have this gathering. Um, and what are the things of the Lord that we would assume that they are talking about? The same things of the Lord that the church in Acts 2 are gathering around. We have to hear the word. We have to receive the sacraments. And we have to gather in prayer. We can't do without those things. Um, so, you know, this rubbish from the governor in Virginia or whoever it was, I probably should get it right if I'm going to throw him under the bus. West Virginia governor? Virginia. Virginia governor came out this past year saying that you can worship the Lord from your own home. I'm sorry, we cannot be without the things of the Lord. And you're a governor. Know your lane. The governor is not here to dictate what the church does. Um, he's not a pastor. He's a governor. And the church cannot be without the things of the Lord. The church must gather around the word. We must gather around the sacrament. Um, we must gather for prayer. And so the first five centuries, a, a ton of historical evidence, and we could, you know, this is the 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 300s. There's a lot more here. Um, the things of the Lord. But we see a consistent um, witness throughout all the writings when the Eucharist comes up. We see a consistent teaching from Acts. We see that it's happening weekly. And we see that it is a central part to the worship of the church until we meet Pope Gregory the Great in the 6th century. And here we start to see a change. Now, Pope Gregory the Great, he's a bit of a reformer. Um, he's the Pope from 590 to 604. And he does a few things uh, that are good. One of the things that he's well known for, if you don't know anything about Gregory the Great, you probably know this. He was known for his music. And he introduced this new sort of music in the church called Gregorian chant. Have you heard it? I was going to pull it up on YouTube. I, my, when my son was about 18 months old, he was upstairs, he was playing with some blocks, and Tim had a Gregorian chant on. Yeah. He stopped in mid-movement to listen to that. Yeah. Oh, that neat. Message. Yeah. Um, Gregorian chant is the oldest form of music that exists today that we still have uh, historical evidence of that we know that this music has been around for 1,500 years. And it was Gregory who introduced it. He was quite a musician. And his, the good things that he did 
was that he introduced music for the sake of making the church's worship more unified. And so it's Gregory who says, you know, as a church who is now spread out throughout the whole world, I mean, Christianity was the official religion of Rome. It had gone out to the ends of the earth. He is the one who said we should, we should, all, we should all be worshiping the same way. So he's the one who really structures the liturgy so that no matter which church you go to, whether it's 500 miles away or the one in your own hometown, it's the same worship. Um, which has some benefits to it. makes you feel right at home. It's Gregory who does that. But it's under Gregory that new doctrines, it always begins with a new teaching, new doctrine on this thing called purgatory starts to creep into the church. Gregory is the one who introduces it. And the concept that the Mass or the Eucharist is a sacrifice. Never heard that before in the history of the church. And, and through these means, Gregory starts to give his kind of stamp of approval on superstitious activities around the Eucharist. So you see four things start to develop around the Eucharist. One, you didn't need to eat the Eucharist. You could just come and adore the Eucharist, sit in its presence, and this thing called Eucharistic adoration begins to be a thing. Um, my grandma still does it. She's a devout Catholic. You know, whenever I was ordained here, she sent me a nice card, told me she spent an hour in Eucharistic adoration for me. I said, thanks, Grandma, but you should just eat him. You know, <laughs> he says to take and eat, not to sit and pray in front of him. But anyway, it's under Gregory that this happens. It's also under Gregory that processions of the host become a thing, that just by proceeding with the host throughout the town, that somehow the Lord's blessings would come upon us. And you saw Pope Francis do this right smack dab in the middle of the pandemic. He comes out right from the Vatican in Italy. And what is he walking around with? The host. But these superstitious activities um, start to come out. And then also um, um, blessing people with the monstrous. So the monstrous is this vessel that Catholics put the reserved host in, and it's usually pretty ornate and spectacular. Um, but they'll walk around and they kind of shine it at you. And by, it shine, by you seeing it, um, you're healed. And I, I witnessed this firsthand. I went to a, a Catholic youth conference in Steuben, uh, it's called Steubenville whenever I was in high school. And you know, it was fascinating because after, uh, there was one night we're all jam-packed in, this, in the <laughs> conference center at Missouri State University. There's about 5,000 of us teens. I was already an odd duck because I'm a Lutheran sitting here in the midst of all these Catholics. And the priest comes by with this monstrous and, you know, he like waves it at us. And all, all the people around me just start flopping on the ground. And one's crying and the other one's laughing hysterically. And I'm going, what is going on here? And the, the priest just keeps shining it. You know, he was really trying to get it into me, I guess. <laughs> it just keeps shining. It's, it's reflective. It's in this gold thing, and the lights are hitting in, and it's shining, and everyone's in this like emotional. Uh, it, was, it was from the spirit. They said enthusiastic. enthusiastic response. Yeah, and I'm sitting there, and I'm going, "Wow, this is different. Never saw this in a Lutheran church." What's going on? And I thought about it. And you know what was weird? No judgment, but here's, here's my judgment. The next day, I saw those same teenagers go up and actually grab 
Jesus and eat him and then just go back and sit down. And I'm like, well, that's weird. The thing which made you flop around last night, you actually just touched it and ate it and it's like not a big deal. Where'd that come from? Superstitious belief by Gregory the Great that just by seeing it, you were healed. And this is under Gregory that you no longer needed to take communion. Just by seeing the host, you were healed. And back at that time, the host would be elevated really high and people could stand outside the church. And when the host would be elevated, they'd ring a little bell. Because the mass was in Latin. You had no idea when this was happening. This is my body in Latin. When you heard that, that was your chance to get up and look. And once you saw it, you were good. You didn't have to come take it. You didn't have to come eat it. You just had to see it. And by doing this, we could atone for the sins of those in purgatory. And you could pay for it, for a priest to, to do this. And during that time, in the 600s, communion actually begins to be celebrated 30, up to 30 times a day in parishes. Now, you didn't have to be there. You could just pay your priest, and he will do it privately so that your dead aunt in purgatory could receive the benefits of the sacrifice of that mass, and she could, hopefully, her soul could spring from purgatory. And so the Eucharist actually in the 600s, it's not just once a week now. It's 30 times a day private masses are being held. And also, the people aren't even receiving it. We're told that around that time, people would only receive it, what, like once a year? Because just by seeing it was enough. Now do you see where the change is starting to occur? It always starts with teaching. When wrong teaching creeps in, it will eventually change your practice. Um, it's the first change in the historical practice of the church, and it's moving away from the word. That was the other thing. It moved away from the preached word. Um, it was just about celebrating the Eucharist, emphasizing the supper. That was the first wrong move of the church. The word gets de-emphasized, and the sacrament becomes the thing that is emphasized. Um, and preaching becomes very infrequent. Look at page 81, and then we'll end here today. Page 81. During this time under Gregory the Great, you could have a private mass for the following requests for getting rain, for preventing bad weather, for protection against lightning, for safety when entering upon a journey. Later on, masses were said to secure God's favor to help in other situations, to find a husband, secure happiness in your marriage, make a business venture prosper, give success to hunters. Such masses resulted from the interpretation that the Lord's Supper was a work that man performed to propitiate God or secure special favors from him. Looking for a husband? Well, how many masses have you paid for? That's the 
Yeah, exactly. It was a moneymaker. Um, so we see this change that the mass is now turned into the work of man. It's no longer a, a God's thing, God's thing that God does for us. It is something that we can do um, to secure his favor. And um, <laughs> when does it stop? Uh, when does it stop? Well, the lightning storm's still happening, so I think I need to still keep paying for it. All these things listed, you see how it's so far away from what Jesus said. Jesus told us what the supper is for in his own words of institution. There's one thing that this gift is for. He says, for the forgiveness of your sins. He didn't say anything about making my business prosper getting a, the trophy buck on my wall. Where did all this stuff come from? Superstitious belief. And so now that we see the first major change in the church. Uh, page 84, Pastor Whiting summarizes it quite well, the first 600 years. Obviously, such abuses serve to exclude lay people from active participation in the liturgy of the church and from receiving the gifts of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. The intense weekly devotion to receiving his word and sacrament that had flowed from the Holy Spirit's leading after Pentecost had been replaced with man-made teachings and prescriptions that lacked the promise of God concerning the very presence of Christ. And instead of pressing their pastors to serve them Jesus' gifts every week, the laity were now paying the pastors to perform an act believed to have the power over some need in this life or some relative or friend in death. Yikes. The man-made prescriptions then that makes you think the Pharisees is what where they were in Jesus' time. Yeah. Man-made teaching. Yeah. Okay. Next week, next thousand years of the church, we got to 600s. Um, we, I want to pick up through the Reformation we're going to look at the Reformation, what, what is happening when Luther comes on to the scenes, and, and then the reforms that he um, desires. So that would be chapter 4. And then we're also going to look at the modern Lutheran church in America. You know, we have to understand our own history and where we've been. So we're going to look at chapter 6 as well, 4 and 6 next week. And, um, oh, I didn't get... We will, I will have time for questions next week about, sorry. I knew I was forgetting something. I could have went for two hours today, Barb. I can move the clock back. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> uh, let's end with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom.